This is a special edition of Macro Voices with hedge fund manager Eric Townsend, the premier financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Now, for this special edition of Macro Voices, here's Eric Townsend. Macro Voices Spotlight, episode number five, was recorded in late October 2020. I'm Eric Townsend. Our topic for this episode is the democratization of alternative investments, specifically art and farmland. Now, regular investors have heard my previous interviews with Artem Milinchuk, founder and CEO of FarmTogether.com, and with Scott Lynn, founder of Masterworks.io. If you haven't heard those interviews, I strongly recommend that you listen to them because they're as relevant today as the day that they were published. But what I'd like to do now, Artem and Scott, Thank you for joining me together. I think you guys actually met through both having been interviewed on Macro Voices. You're both doing completely, totally different things. Art and farmland sound like they're unrelated. But in many ways, from an investing standpoint, they're very closely related because these are asset classes that have been very popular with very well-heeled investors, with billionaires, for more than a decade now. But they were out of reach, even to accredited investors, because to buy a a painting that costs several million dollars or to buy an entire farm that might cost several million dollars, most normal investors don't have the ability to do that as a small percentage of their overall portfolio. You guys have both found ways to democratize and securitize these investments. And I think this is just a fascinating trend. What I'd like to start with is how you got started with with this, whether the idea was let's go out and look at alternative assets that are not available, or if it was more just investing in farmland and investing in art, which you're both expert in, that led you into this need to create a new investment vehicle. Artem, why don't we start with you? You are the founder of Farm Together. Before you founded Farm Together, you were an institutional investor engaged in buying farmland for the institutions that you worked for. What brought you to creating Farm Together? How did you get to doing this? Eric, good to be back. Thank you for that introduction. So indeed, my background is almost 10 years in finance with focus on farmland, agriculture, food. I worked for a big pension fund in Canada. I worked for a small private equity fund in a family office. And in a lot of uh, my uh, professional life, I was investing in, in the sector. So I understand it really well, both kind of horizontally and vertically. And really, I think what drew me to starting Farm Together was seeing how attractive farmland is as an asset class. And you know, we talked about this in the previous podcast, but just to remind your listeners, it's very attractive risk-adjusted returns almost no correlation to other asset classes and compelling long-term demand trends, growing population, improving diets, and decreasing supply due to things like climate change and urbanization. And really, I think it's, it's phenomenal how still people think of it as an exotic asset class. I was just on a call, actually, and someone asked me, like, well, how, what gave you the idea to invest in this exotic asset class? And it's always funny to me because it's, you know, literally the oldest asset class in the world. You know, that's how your wealth was measured. That's how civilization started. And so we just, you know, new is a good forgotten old, as they say. And all I wanted to do is to give people back the opportunity to invest in this market, in this asset class, in something that is a staple literally in our lives. And, uh, you know, Farm Together was started in early 2018 
with uh, right now focus on American farmland and with uh, accredited investors as as our clients. But we really would love to democratize it to every investor that whether you have a dollar, whether you have $100,000, you could still invest into this market. Scott Lynn, what is your background in fine art? Did you come at this from an investing standpoint or did you come at it from an art perspective and realize that there was a market for democratizing this investment that wasn't being filled? Thanks for having me, Eric. Yeah, so I, I guess similar to to Artem, my perspective on Masterworks is um, it's just the, the the same, roughly. So you have this very old asset class. I like to talk about how Sotheby's, which is one of the top two auction houses, just recently went private on the New York Stock Exchange. And most people don't know this, but Sotheby's was the oldest listed company on the New York Stock Exchange at 275 years old. So this is an asset class that's been that's been traded for centuries, um, as you mentioned, Eric, primarily between the the ultra wealthy. But there hasn't been a good way for people to allocate to it outside of having millions of dollars to buy a painting. So Masterworks was the first company to securitize a painting by filing it with the SEC. And similar to um, to Farm Together, we you know have investors across the spectrum, from small investors to accredited investors to larger investors. But most investors are focused on uncorrelated kind of outperforming returns. So we, we just believe that this is an asset class that should be part of any investment portfolio. But up until now, there hasn't been a good way to allocate to it. Now, I want to ask both of you, and, and don't take this the wrong way, but you know, you're not the only smart guys in the world. Why the heck, if these asset classes, which frankly have been very popular with the smartest investors in the world for more than a decade, a lot of hedge fund managers are buying fine art collections, not because they're art aficionados, but because they care about that decorrelated asset class and the returns that it produces. It's well known that, that people are interested in these asset classes, that they performed well. The idea of creating some kind of investment vehicle to make it possible for smaller investors to invest in fine art or in farmland, you know, it, it can't be that you guys are the first ones ever to have noticed this opportunity. Why wasn't it available as an asset class previously? I think it's a, I think it's a good question. I mean, in Masterworks, we talk a lot about this question and the short answer is we don't we don't know, right? I mean, we we do think that obviously art's been around, as I mentioned, for hundreds of years. You would think that at some point someone would have attempted to securitize it. As many of these these investing platforms have found, you know, I think the thing that that really ignited this whole movement was the Jobs Act, which allowed these kind of mini IPOs to to be done with the SEC in a much easier way than than historically was possible. So I think regulation has allowed for for some of that change. Obviously, the internet with self-directed investors going to a website and being able to invest directly has allowed for it. I don't know, Artem, if you have, if you have other other thoughts on that. Yeah, everything Scott said is is correct, and those are big trends. I would say, from a top-down perspective, it's also the emergence of alternatives in general. Right now, if you Google for two seconds 60/40 portfolio, the first things that will come up, you know, 60/40 portfolio is dead, and you know, 60/40 is uh, stocks and bonds and the uh, combination of portfolio, ultra low interest rates, everything becoming correlated. We have seen alternatives, you know, explode from nothing to two, tr three trillion in 2008, and after 2008, and now after this latest crisis, to uh, almost 10 trillion projected to reach 13 trillion. So, uh, farmland, art, this is just other asset classes that go from you know nice to have to a must have in your portfolio if you want to generate returns, especially good risk-adjusted returns in the next decade. So I think it's just a much broader trend of 
people forced to look beyond what was you know, the traditional portfolio to new things. You know, the, the other thing too, Eric, that I would say, which is definitely relevant to the art market, and I think it's probably relevant to other asset classes is, you know, I think about when I first started collecting art in the, the mid to late 1990s, there wasn't a good way for someone entering the art market to really understand the value. So for example, you know, if you wanted to buy a Picasso painting, you would go to a gallery or a dealer and you would say, hey, you know, I'm interested in a Picasso. The dealer would say, well, I have this one to offer you, you know, it's worth $10 million. And you really didn't have a way to understand if that $10 million was accurate or not, other than maybe going to a third-party appraisal firm. But but what happened in the late 90s and the early 2000s is there there was this this movement towards digitizing all of the information in the art market and publishing it online. So I think I think that particular event where you, had, you have websites like Artnet or ArtPrice that someone new to the art market can go to and search public auction records by artist and and see you know literally billions of dollars in transaction volume every single year is really what what kind of started this movement of people looking at the art market from an investment perspective because up until then there there wasn't a good data set to um, to analyze. Gentlemen, I'm very curious about the investors who invest with you and their profile, because I've spoken now with two Macro Voices listeners who have invested with both of you. And it was fascinating to me that they both said exactly the same things, and it was not what I was expecting. I was expecting to hear some kind of, I've always been passionate about art, or I've always been passionate about farming. It was none of that. It was pure investment. And they both said the same thing, which is the returns are great, but more important is the decrease correlation from equities and other asset classes. And the thing that was striking to me is these were both sophisticated, high net worth individual investors. They were not institutional guys. And frankly, that that reflects a level of understanding of portfolio construction theory that I don't really encounter typically with retail investors. Do most of your investors, are they sophisticated guys who really understand why that decorrelation of performance to other asset classes is so important? Or was that just an anomaly that the guys that I talked to had that perspective? Eric, I would say that to flip the question a little bit to its side, we have both sophisticated investors. We have both kind of you know people just with strong common sense, uh, business people that made their money in uh, some sort of real business and now uh, want to invest. And, you know, I would say that that decorrelation is kind of intuitively clear when your your stock portfolio is suddenly down 30%, you kind of understand that for longer term, you need something more diversified. And so that's been a huge driver for us. Uh, Another one actually has been protection against uh, what people see as potential future inflation. But it hasn't been, you know, that complicated to understand to be honest and so we've we definitely had kind of both both types of investors but decorrelation has been a massive reason for uh, investing in farmland yeah when when i started masterworks I, I always remember this one meeting that i had with the head of strategic asset allocation at goldman we we went in and we were we were talking to goldman very generally about the asset class and what masterworks was doing and he asked me a very simple question which is you know how can you prove to me that this is a strategic asset class defined as something that outperforms inflation, something that's uncorrelated. And at this time, this is this is only two or three years ago, there had never been a correlation study done between art as an asset class and, and any other asset class. So that was really the genesis of us, I guess, more he- heavily focusing on funding uh, our research team, which, which assembled a lot of data for your listeners that understand how Case Shiller was ass- assembled for real estate. 
uh, we assembled a lot of data on the art market, constructed indexes, and basically showed that art was an uncorrelated asset class. And I think that's allowed us to attract larger investors than we we would have otherwise been able to attract. But but similar to to what Artem said, I mean, we see smaller investors sign up on the platform. We see larger investors sign up. You know, we accept both retail investors as well as accredited since these are qualified SEC offerings. I think our average investor now is investing around $25,000 for their lifetime. So it's it's kind of a mid, you know, the average is sort of a mid-sized investor, although obviously averages are misleading. But yeah, I mean, we we see growth in the in the future with with both small investors as well as large. And do people come to you with a passion for artwork and say, it's something because I love art, I always wanted to invest in it? Or are they just interested in the investment proposition and don't really you know, care about it, whether it be artwork or farmland, that they're, they're really looking at it as an investment? Or is it because they, they had an interest in the underlying asset itself? It's a great question. When, when I started Masterworks, I thought there would be this interesting product market fit where we would have collectors that are that are buying $10,000 paintings but can't afford million-dollar paintings come to Masterworks and want to invest in these offerings. And I think what we found is that that's really not the case. I mean, we, we really don't see anyone from the, the art community signing up on the platform. And in hindsight, I think that makes sense. I, I mean, I think that would be analogous to trying to sell, you know, a, a real estate investment vehicle to a real estate developer. We just find that if people self-identify as collectors, then they're more interested in doing it themselves and they're, they're not interested in really just looking at it purely from an investment perspective. So today, everyone that's on the platform really is just seeking uncorrelated, outperforming returns. Artem, what about you? Are, you? are your investors farmers and people that are interested in farming or is it just investors? So we have a different story. We, of course, have predominantly financial investors, but we do have a meaningful farming community that happens to oftentimes know a particular operator or area. And it's always very rewarding to get a call from someone who just invested in your latest farm and say, oh yeah, like I know your, you know, your operator, your farmer really well, they're great guys. And I actually drove by the property, it looks nice. <laughs> and and I think that's because unlike in, in art, you do have people that want exposure to a particular geography or crop or even a farmer that they know and they trust in. But to Scott's point, farms that make sense from an economic scale start from a few million dollars, a million dollar, two, three. So it's hard for even farmers to invest in it. So we definitely have that. We have people that live in a particular area and they want to support the local economy. So not a non-financial type of investor. Great example would be Oregon. Uh, residents who have been investing in our Oregon hazelnut orchards. Just a quick side note, but it's it's interesting how Oregon's becoming this new hazelnut belt where uh, big companies like Mars, Nestle are diversifying from Turkey, which is the largest supplier, into you know the, the fertile Willamette Valley in Oregon. And our latest deal is actually there as well. So there's people who go like, oh yeah, I drive by that property all the time. This one is actually like literally of the interstate of the five. And so we've seen that more emotional connection. And, and you know, that's great. I think part of our mission is we'd love to educate more people, non-farmers in this case, about how your food is grown, who grows your food, give you that, you know, story of the harvest, of the planting, of the blooming of the almond orchard, which is you know, just beautiful, share stories of the farmers there. And so definitely would love to invest more in that too. 
Alternative investments have been growing just in leaps and bounds in recent years. Now, in the institutional market, one of the main reasons for that is just because bond yields are so low in recent years. A lot of people are looking for bond alternatives. What is driving your end of this? Obviously, I know both of you, your business is booming. There's a huge amount of interest in these asset classes. What's driving it? And and should investors worry? You know, is it a cycle that's going to end at some point? Yes. Well, I'll I'll take that from Masterworks. I I think what's driving interest for us is is maybe different than than other platforms. So I think what we've seen is since we're, we're the first company to securitize a painting, we're really the only place that investors can go to allocate to art outside of just buying a painting themselves. So we're we're seeing all types of investors come to the platform and express interest in that. And I think I think that coupled with some of the offerings we had. I mean, we just sold a painting yesterday that had thirty four percent net returns cash on cash to investors. So things like that have, have driven driven a lot of interest. Artem, what about the farmland side? So you know you know the coming back to this question of decorrelation and, and cycles and whether you know the situation in bonds matters, like all those things of course matter and there's cycles in farming like in anything else. But overall we actually see investors who look at us as a bond-like product for certain uh, types of products, especially more cash flowing where most of the returns are locked in, like again, this hazelnut interstate deal. And, you know, coming back to the the point of sort of cycles and I guess the how trends matter here, they matter to a certain extent, but I think same as, you know, for art, it's kind of like a timeless thing, farmland, in fact, you know, the only time that I can't say farmland is the oldest asset class is with Scott, because if we look at like the paintings in, in caves that were before agriculture started, that's probably the oldest uh, asset class. But um, no, we, we haven't really seen, you know, people that worried about the cycles. Actually, Eric, let me, let me add one thing to that. I don't know, Artem, if you saw this as well, but we saw that sort of during the start of, of Corona and just volatility in public equities, we saw a lot of investors come to Masterworks and, and sign up that I think previously weren't considering it. So I do think just volatility with public equities has, has led to an increase in interest as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that the sort of the broader cycles in the market led people to farmland as well and looking for that safety, non-correlation. Whereas I think that, you know, the cycles in in the ag space, in the farmland space, while matter, I think people are looking at the long term where those cycles kind of smooth them out a little bit. Scott, I'm not sure, you know, I'd be actually curious to hear kind of what the cycles in the art market look like and whether that matters to your investors. Yeah, we so when I guess when we think about cycles, we tend to think about how we pressure test uh, correlation during past financial crises. And part of our core thesis in the beginning was that art prices are correlated to global ultra wealth creation. A lot of people don't realize this, but art, at least the, the United States in art is only 25% of the overall art market. So it is really a, a global asset class. And we just think that as the top 1% around the world gets wealthier, then art prices tend to go up. And then the second thing, which is really interesting about the, the asset class is that supply is continuously decreasing. So when an artist makes paintings during his lifetime and then passes away, Eventually, all of those paintings are donated to institutions. So we see a direct correlation between supply going down and price going up. So all of that being said, I mean, we, we think it's a, uh, an interesting, uncorrelated, outperforming asset class. 
Do either of you imagine yourselves expanding into other asset classes, either a broader, you know, as I understand it right now on Masterworks side, you're really investing in paintings, not in sculptures and other kinds of artwork. And likewise, on Artem's side of this with Farm Together, you're investing in farmland where you own the land, but you don't operate the farm. So would something like securitizing the, the farm as a business or sculptures and other kinds of artwork, is that on the horizon or is that outside your expertise area? So Eric, we actually, some of our farms are direct operated. It's a very attractive model where you have the right operators, where the investors have exposure to the operating capabilities and scale of um, a kind of a farming organization. So we do have some deals like that. But besides that, same as Scott, I think we really believe in being laser focused on the best sourcing, the best underwriting, the best asset management in farmland, in U.S. farmland, especially in permanent crops where right now our main focus is. And so we'd like to stay laser focused because it's such a huge market. It's 2.5 trillion in the United States alone. And so there's you know plenty of work to do for many years to come. And I think excellence comes from focus. So we are going to stay in our lane for quite some time. Yeah, Artem, I, I don't know if you if you get these these <laughs> inbound inquiries, but I get I get people all the time calling us and saying, "Hey, you know, we we whatever we have a lot of domain expertise in classic cars. We'd love to partner with you to you know bring classic cars to your investors." Or my favorite was um, there was actually this T Rex dinosaur that sold at Christie's. <laughs> uh, Two weeks ago, and I, the, the the name of the dinosaur is Stan. We've we've been joking about it internally. So Stan sold for thirty million dollars, and we had a bunch of inbounds after that of people wanting to securitize fossils. But the you know the bottom line is we our domain expertise is art. I mean, I've I've been collecting art for twenty years. Have a top one hundred collection. Everyone on the team has only been in the art market, similar to farmland. I mean, it's such a huge asset class that. I don't even think we can be experts on art overall. We could be experts in certain segments of the market, but but not on the asset class overall. So for us, it's just it's just staying focused as well. I'd like to move on now to the stability of these investments. The COVID-19 crisis is not over yet as we're recording in late October of 2020. But, you know, we've been through the the big panic in the stock market and the mostly recovery. And, and now as we're recording, we're seeing at least a, an intermediate term top coming up on the election, waiting to see what happens. How have these asset classes of farmland and fine art performed in terms of their volatility and overall performance, let's say, relative to something like the stock market during this crisis so far? Why don't we start with you, Artem? Yeah, absolutely. So farmland overall, when we look in the last 30, 40 years, has been incredibly stable. The overall volatility is about 6 7% annually, which is much lower than stocks at 10 12 13% plus, a little bit higher than bonds and 4 or 5%. And then if we dig down into farmland, into different segments, you know, I mentioned permanent crops, the tree nuts, uh, we also do raw crops. Those have even volatility less than that, about 3%, 4%. So in Q1, farmland was actually down less than 1% as an overall index, and it fully recovered and made up the gains in Q2. So it's almost flat, whereas you know, we had these huge swings in the stock markets. And that's honestly part of that is just the way farmland investing works. It's very much oftentimes a rental model where the rents are paid by the farmer upfront. It's a cash lease that has little kind of exposure to the harvest, to the crop prices. And then secondly, you know, the long-term trends in, in 
land values, price appreciation have been very stable in the last now 50, 60 years, driven by productivity growth and population growth. So with, you know, with farmland also, because when you think about volatility, really, what it means is that uncertainty about a value of a particular asset. And there's no uncertainty that people need to eat every day, no matter whether it's a crisis or it's a boom. And I think that leads back to why farmland is such a low volatility, safe asset that preserves its principle really well, that growth at good stable rates. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of been the performance and we expect that fully to continue. That's kind of, you know, steady as she goes, good long-term stable returns. So I think if you if you go back to our conversation about correlation and you look at each of the individual financial crises in 2000, when the dot-com bubble burst, our prices actually went up. So they were uncorrelated. In 0809, we saw the highest correlation factor ever between art and public equities of roughly 0.4. In 2016, we actually saw the art market decline as public equities continue to go up. And we think that was probably because of capital controls in China combined with Brexit. And then, you know, I mentioned earlier, we, we published the first correlation study on art a couple of years ago in partnership with Citi. And at that time, we, we, we concluded that it was this uncorrelated asset class because of the historical data. And then, you know, right after we published that, obviously, today, we, we now have coronavirus to, to test that hypothesis. And what we've seen in June, July, August, and September is that our prices have continued to go up. So despite sort of the volatility with public equities this year, we, we, we haven't really seen that same volatility in the art market. And again, I, I think you know the best way to understand our prices is just to qualitatively overlay this, this filter of how has the top 1% been doing throughout all of these periods? And you can kind of draw some, some conclusions from that. Let's look forward with respect to the COVID-19 crisis. There's clearly in real estate, uh, residential real estate, there are some trends emerging where it looks like the changes in where people want to live are likely to be with us for many years to come. High-end luxury real estate in rural areas, this is very bullish. Manhattan, downtown, not so much. Uh, What does this mean in terms of how COVID-19 is going to change the world? I I, I don't know if that affects the, the demand for which crops are most in demand or what kind of art is most popular. What does COVID-19 mean in years ahead? Let's start with Artem and the market for farmland. Yeah, Eric. um, So if we look at the long-term effects from COVID and the changes in demand, long-term, we don't see any changes. You know, we're talking about staples, about established food habits that change very slowly. Now, of course, there is um, certain trends that have been exacerbated in the short term. So for example, uh, a lot of the nuts actually consumed in the hospitality and travel industry, whether you're flying on a plane, you get a packet of almonds, whether it's you know nuts to nibble at the bar, at the hotel. And so those actually have been seen short-term hits, but they've been surprisingly resilient. And you know, part of the kind of short-term effects have also been due to logistics, for example, getting nuts out to China from LA and San Francisco, Oakland ports that has been uh, hard. Uh, So definitely have seen some challenges there. But overall, I think also the second trend that's going to come into play is building more resilient supply chains. There's perhaps a much larger trend of deglobalization that uh, you and your listeners might have views on. And if we get to a more 
kind of localized world, then having that security food supply will become more important for national security. And that might change how uh, certain trade flows go. You know, for United States, of course, it's uh, definitely a big plus because United States is a large producer. We are fully sufficient in a lot of ways domestically. And the products that U.S. grows uh, they're hard to, a lot of them, for example, almonds are actually really hard to grow elsewhere because of the unique climate and the infrastructure. So it's definitely, I would say broadly, we don't expect a lot of changes from uh, the post-COVID world, but definitely keeping a close eye. We always open to be wrong, to doing our due diligence, our analysis, and making sure that you know the farms we choose are rightly positioned for this new world. And always coming back to, you know, diversification, not just with the asset class farmland, but also within your farmland portfolio so that you have exposure to multiple farms. Scott, what does the post-crisis or aftermath of the crisis mean for investments in art? Well, as I mentioned, art prices are are correlated to the top 1%. So again, I I think we tend to think about what could impact the the top 1% globally. You know, generally speaking, throughout this crisis, we we really haven't seen much of an impact to the top one percent. Like their spending patterns are similar. Obviously, we've seen auction volume go down because many auctions are conducted in person, and those have been either shifted online or canceled altogether. But we've continued to see prices rise. So, you know, I think when we think down the road, we we try to think about what what policies in different different countries could impact that top one percent. And at least in the U.S. We, we do see different proposals for things such as wealth taxes. You know, I'm, I'm living right now in, in New York City and we have a billionaire tax that's proposed by the mayor. Things like that, we, we can see potentially hurting the art market if, if wealth is effectively taken away from that, that top 1%. The other big trend that seems pretty darn certain is both low interest rates and I think also MMT is, is really coming. We're going to see more printing of money by central banks, not just to support financial markets, but I think also to support more government spending on probably both infrastructure and social programs. Uh, That's not the 1%, but it is a a big part of the economy. What does that mean? Why don't we start with with farmland and Artem? I, I would imagine low interest rates definitely create a competitive advantage for farmland. Yeah, absolutely. Farmland is uh, a interest-sensitive long-duration bond, if you will, especially on the long-term row crop farms. And so we we have already seen that kind of demand emerge where investors are investing in that long-term stable, safe farms with us as a way to essentially buy uh, inflation-protected bonds. And they outright tell us that they think this is better than tips. And that's been, I think, a driver and will be a driver. I'm actually with you completely. I think because of the somewhat failure of the fiscal policies and of politicians to properly allocate wealth, manage social tensions, the central banks step up into an unnatural role of actually trying to solve all the problems that the government should be solving. And so we're going to see probably massive printing of money unless there's some sort of miraculous resolving of all the political gridlocks we've seen in the last decades. And of course, farmland being a great inflation protector, actually even better than gold historically, should benefit meaningfully from that. So yeah, that's honestly, that's been the big driver for demand we have seen uh, on the platform recently. Scott, what about art? 
Well, I think art, interestingly, is very different than than almost every other asset class. There's really only only two banks which have provided a meaning amount of leverage to the the art market. Uh, one is City, and one is U.S. Trust. Now, if you think about the, I guess, just the data. So last year, roughly sixty eight billion dollars in art sold. The total size of the asset class is one point seven trillion dollars. Those two banks have grown their loan books pretty pretty substantially over the past five years, but I think each of them only holds about $10 billion in collateral each. So call it call it $20 billion in total. So art really at this point isn't a, a heavily leveraged asset class, obviously with low interest rates. I mean, if you look at just the arbitrage opportunity of borrowing low and then continuing to return much, much higher returns, you know, the art market overall, if you look at the top 100 artists, which constitute a majority of the market, that segment of the market's appreciated about 9% for the past 20 years. So, you know, it is, it is an interesting asset class to use leverage with, but I, you know, I would say that only the very sophisticated people like hedge fund managers are really doing that today. You know, Scott, that's really interesting. And I didn't know this about the art market. I would think you would have more leverage. Surprisingly for a lot of people, farmland is in somewhat similar situation. The debt to asset ratio in farmland, which has some of the lowest interest rates. It's a very long dated asset. It's only 13%, one three, versus when you look at real estate, uh, it's more like 50%. And so I think similarly, there's also a lot of potential for more leveraged ownership of farmland coming into play, which will uh, create more demand and sort of drive the, the prices in that way as well. It's a very interesting similarity that I didn't know about. The other aspect of this, I guess, with the crisis or just the general outlook is, does it create any particular opportunities? So have there been any deals on either of your platforms that you uh, either are currently excited about or past deals that have already closed that were opportunities that resulted either from the crisis or from other aspects of the current macro backdrop? Why don't we start with you, Scott? Sure. Yeah. So as, as I mentioned, we um, we really haven't seen any impact on the crisis in the art market, meaning we haven't seen people selling paintings for less money. And we haven't, you know, we, we haven't really seen investors shying away from assets or anything like that. So we, we've seen more increased activity from investors and we've seen prices continue to rise. We, we just recently sold a painting yesterday, actually, by an artist named Banksy, who, who most of your listeners are probably familiar with, which resulted in a 34% net of fee return to investors. So that was obviously a great deal. And we we do see this trend in the art market, which is interesting, where more pop culture artists like Banksy are, are garnering more and more attention uh, and their markets are, are continuing to move up. He actually sold a painting this week, actually, I think also yesterday at Sotheby's for just over $10 million, which is the second closest painting to a, to a price record that he has. So in the art market, for better or for worse, we, ju- we just continue to see prices increase. It's fascinating to me that you didn't have, I, I would have expected, you know, there was such and such an incredible steal of a deal because everything was distressed. And I suppose it, it, it's very positive for the, the future outlook that, that the market is that resilient. Artem, what about the farmland side? Have there been bargains or does it not work that way? Yeah, there, there haven't been any bargains. I think um, really you know, farmers are well capitalized. There's a lot of value in farm. Like I mentioned, it's under leveraged. So we have not seen any bargains really to get good deals. You have to 
develop relationships and go into off-market opportunities. So I actually want to mention an off-market deal. We have a very experienced hazelnut operator in Oregon. So it's a, it's called Interstate and it's a, a long-term lease with contracted purchase with a hazelnut operator that we've actually worked with now on a number of deals. And, you know, the beauty of the hazelnut uh, Oregon industry and the Oregon hazelnuts is that, well, one, they're actually really delicious and it's my favorite nut. They're bigger than the Turkish hazelnuts, which is actually 70% of the market. And what's been driving a lot of demand for the for the Oregon production is that huge companies like Mars, Ferrero Rocher, Nestle, they're looking to diversify and hedge their production risk with Turkey. And it's you know just pure diversification of supply chains, what we talked about. It's also things like challenges in supply due to climate change. It's potential labor issues and concerns about you know that on the uh, sort of on how workers in Turkey are treated, whereas in, in Oregon, they're treated very well. And so all that, I think, makes this deal, the interstate deal that we got completely in off-market, quite compelling. And so I think that's overall what you can expect from us is to really you know, dig the ground, no pun intended, but to find the deals that are, are differentiated, that are with a great operator, that are oftentimes off-market or have some sort of value improvement potential. So you're not just getting you no know, a farm, but you're getting a good farm or the farm. Is that deal still available on your platform, or is that one already closed? It's still available. Still has some room left. Yeah, we actually have increased the size of our deals because the last few deals have sold out like in literally minutes. So this deal is still available on the platform, and yeah, you can check it out at farmtogether.com. Last question for both of you, because you obviously know more about these asset classes than I do. What have I left out or what bit of insight do you have about these asset classes that you might want to share with our listeners that I haven't asked you about so far? Scott, why don't we start with you? Well, I think a high-level dynamic about what we're doing and what, what Artem's doing is there, there's just today, at least in, in the art market, there's just a lack of smart people competing for different assets that are high quality. And, and what I mean by that is I like to use this analogy between art and venture private equity. So if you look at venture and private equity as an asset class, which almost everyone's familiar with, the size of that asset class is roughly $3.5 trillion. And there's 6,000 firms that operate to allocate capital, primarily from institutions, to that asset class. You look at the art market today, it's roughly $1.7 trillion. And the only person that's ever securitized a painting is Masterworks. So to me, just very high level from a macro perspective, that's super interesting, right? Like there's not a lot of smart people operating in the art market today that are trying to understand returns, correlation, and how to allocate to it. So we just think there's lots of opportunity for investors to find alpha due to the lack of competition. And Artem, what about on your side with Farmland? I think we touched on a lot of the main points around returns, correlations, volatility, long-term trends. I would say what we haven't talked about yet is that farmland is a fantastic tool for impact. If you are looking to make a positive impact in the world through regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture, this will be increasingly the types of deals we offer to the market. And farmland is, is really unique in that it can impact 8 out of 17 UN sustainable development goals, everything from climate change to water, to uh, hunger, poverty. And so you'll see more and more deals like that coming to the platform. The deal, actually, next deal that we have planned in store is a really exciting organic fruit farm that uh, touches on a lot of those themes. So I think that's a really exciting part for me about farmland. It's like how many 
different areas and problems you touch with one investment. And for our listeners who want to participate in these investments for art investing, which is available to all investors, you don't have to be accredited. Masterworks.io is Scott's website. Artem, at farmtogether.com, at least as I understand it, you do have to be an accredited investor. Now, I know Scott said, thanks to the Jobs Act, they've found a way to make the, the art investments available to all investors. Do you have any plans to eventually be able to offer non-accredited investors opportunities in farmland? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, definitely kudos to Scott for being ahead in that and democratizing this asset class uh, art. We have the same plans for farmland. It's a big part of our mission. Uh, a little maybe cheesy internal tagline we have is we want every American to own a piece of America. Right now, unfortunately, it is still for accredited investors, but I do want to highlight that in December, the new SEC rules kick in for what, who is considered accredited and certain designations, certain series uh, of licenses and other ways uh, will kick in as to who is considered accredited. So we'll have more information on that on the platform. Definitely encourage everyone to register because there'll be more ways for people to invest. So there's opportunities right now for accredited investors at farmtogether.com. And if you're not accredited, it sounds like keep your eye on the website. Gentlemen, I want to thank you both for a terrific interview. It's really great to see what you're doing to make these asset classes, uh, you know, to democratize this and make it available to all investors. It certainly has been too long that some of the best investments have only been available to the super rich. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. concludes this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Please register your free account at macrovoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free listener discussion forums and research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at macrovoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. You can email questions for the program to mailbag at macrovoices.com and we'll answer your questions on the air from time to time in our mailbag segment. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com and by funding from Fourth Turning Capital Management, LLC. For more information, visit macrovoices.com.